Father God, thank you for your grace and for your mercy, and thank you, O oh God, that um, uh, that you know the beginning from the end, even as we'll see today in, in your word. God, I thank you for uh, these folks that are here, and I thank you for this church. I thank you for this place that you blessed us to be in. I thank you even for the time that we have to to really press into you and to see what you have for us during this season in the life of living grace. Lord, we pray that, um, uh, that your word would speak to us this morning, that you would lead us and guide us by your spirit, and that, Lord, our ears are open to what you have to say. And God, thank you for speaking in advance. And Lord, prepare our hearts for this season of pressing into you fasting and praying and even as we've been looking at the book of Daniel and looking at many times where he would we'd have those kinds of seasons and we know that that uh, uh, Ezra Nehemiah call those kinds of of holy convocations Lord Uh, we look to you to strengthen us and to um, encourage us and to energize uh, your people for your work for your glory so be magnified O God in all things and give us uh, your word uh, that we might understand it today in Jesus name and everyone said amen. amen give someone a high five and have a seat if you would <clears throat> all right turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11 Daniel chapter 11 and if you do not have a Bible raise your hand we'll get you one anybody at all who doesn't have a Bible just raise your hand uh, they have some Bibles in the back there we can hand out to you we'll get you one or two or whatever you need <clears throat> Daniel chapter 11, verse 32 says this, says, But the people who know their God shall prove themselves strong and shall stand firm and do exploits or great exploits for God. The people who know their God shall prove themselves strong and stand firm and do exploits for God. By the way, uh, if you were not here last week, um, uh, I want to encourage you again, if you did not uh, listen to Joshua's teaching on Daniel chapter 10, that you can get the CD afterwards, or you can go online and listen to it. But uh, that was an amazing, amazing teaching. And so, brother, thank you for that. I mean, we know God's working and speaking through you, so we appreciate that. But um, um, uh, prophecy specifics. You know, the Word of God is very specific. Have you ever had someone who gave you what they said was a prophetic word from the Lord, but it was just very general, like very vague? And, and you know, I mean, there's 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 something to that. You know what? God's going to bless you. Cool. All right. Okay. Now we don't always have to have intimate details, but maybe someone has said there's something good coming your way or or, ooh, you know, something really difficult. You go, oh, man. Uh, could you be a little more specific, please? Oh, that's all I got. Well, brother, why did you even say that, right? You know? Well, you know, there's value in that. But here's the thing. There are times in the Word of God where it is incredibly specific in the, pro- in the prophecy that it speaks. Uh, writing some five and a half centuries before Christ was born, Daniel predicts to the day that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. We call that day Palm Sunday. To the day. Would you agree with me that that's specific? Okay, it's like God took the calendar into the future and said, okay, okay, Daniel, the way we're going to break it down is on, uh, uh, on this day right here, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come into Jerusalem and, uh, uh, riding on the, 
uh, on the donkey and, and he's going to be uh, appraised and honored and adored. And so, Daniel, we're going to give you the information and we're going to uh, bless some people who are really good at math to figure it out and it's going to be on that day. That is specific. Uh, uh, the Bible speaks about the destruction of a city called Nineveh, Nineveh in the book of Nahum. And he accurately predicts that the city would end. And this is what he says. And this is at, at a time when, when Nineveh was a mighty, mighty city. And, and he said basically that the end would come with an overwhelming flood and that they would be invaded through a breach in the walls and that it would be hidden and not discovered. And in fact, that happened in 612 B.C. And that city, that massive, amazing city was hidden till 1842. <laughs> uh, that's pretty specific well how about the indicators that uh of the messiah who's going to come in the old testament written hundreds of years before that time frame things like that uh, his lineage would be uh, that of king david and jesus can trace his lineage to david uh, both through joseph and mary uh, well, how about where he would be born? How about where he would be, uh, uh, where he would live? How about the way that he would die? How about that there would be there would be criminals that would be next to him uh, at his death? Uh, how about that in his death not one single bone would be broken? And how about that he would die, and then he would raise from the dead? Okay, that's pretty amazing, right? And, and, and see, that's the specifics and the specific details of the Bible are amazing. And one of the most specifically detailed chapters in all of the Bible is Daniel chapter 11. The angel Gabriel is continuing on in a discussion with Daniel and revealing the future, the short term and the very long term future of Israel. And there are many critics of the Bible who read this chapter and say there is no possible way that Daniel could have predicted these things. It is just absolutely too specific and too detailed because this reads, they say, like history, not like prophecy. In other words, Daniel wrote these things down after the fact. And you would have to agree with me that if that's in fact what happened, then nobody would say this is prophecy. I mean, even in the time that this was written, if, if, if he were to say all of these things were going to happen, then plenty of people would have said, well, Daniel, of course they happened. It happened a long time ago. We all know that. You see, prophecy isn't something that's history. It's history in advance. Oh, I see. Now, why is that important? Because if Daniel's off in this, in, in these amazing prophecies that the Lord and, and, and has been giving him, uh, uh, if he's off, then, then we have to question our confidence in the entire book. We have to say, well, man, you know, you know, Daniel was an amazing man of God, but, you know, chapter 11, he's way off on there. Now, 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 if you're a thinking person, you're going to say, well, wait a minute. If Daniel's off on chapter 11, like way off, then what about the rest of the book? And how are we to know that this is any different than other books that claim to be prophetic or claim to say that they have absolute truth? Ah, so it's, it's important to know that 
we can trust his prophecy. It's important to know that we can trust other prophecies. It's important to know that because it gives us confidence. Not just in the book, but in the God of the book. And when, th- when things are kind of crazy and, and, you know, the dust is all over, kind of like when you scuba dive at Lake Mead, and if you dare touch the bottom and this big cloud of dust, you can't even see your hand in front of your face, and what do you do? You don't do anything. You try to swim out of it or you just wait till it settles. And sometimes when our life is like that, you know what? It helps to know, you know what, God, you've, you have a plan, God. God, you're, you're involved in, 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 the, in, the, in the grand scheme of things in nations and in my life as well, as well. No other book has this distinction. No other religious system can claim these kinds of precepts. And so, so that makes us say, okay, this book is different. This book is different. Okay, it's not just some book about a positive way of thinking and, and a way to treat other people nicely. There's, there's something more to this book than, than just that. It's not just a self-help book. And then if there's something more to the book, there's something more to the God of this book. And, and if there's something more to the God of this book, we need to take serious account of what Jesus said who showed us how to, how to walk with God and how to live with God. Uh, you know, I know that when I first became a believer in Jesus, I tell you what, I, you know, I, I was, I mean, I grew up with a heart for God. I did. Boy, I, I tell you, man, if, if there, we were just talking, I was talking with Vernon Fox that there's a fellowship of Christian athletes is a, is a powerful ministry in high schools and universities that reach athletes. Why do they bother with athletes? Because if you didn't notice, athletes are pretty influential. <laughs> if you didn't notice that, you let you know, my, there was some NFL award show on TV last night, and my kids, kids kept running in. Oh, so-and-so thanked God. Oh, cool. Oh, so-and-so asked Jesus, mentioned Jesus. Was it in a good way? Yes. Okay, great. Oh, Dad, almost everyone who won an award mentions God. Okay, we'll take that, right? Now, we don't know anything about their lives, but we'll take that, right? Yeah, because they're influential. And boy, I tell you, I had a heart for God. But I just didn't know him. I, I, I did. I think if I was 15, 16, 17, and someone would have exposed me to the truth of Jesus in a relational way, in a relevant way, would have scooped me right up. And how many of you know I would have made a whole lot of different choices between 15 and 25? Because you can, I have a few witnesses in here, right? Amen. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Some of us got born into the world and we were born again. At the same time, some of us had to come through the back door, but we got in. No matter how you get in, as long as you get in, right? Okay, I digress. Uh, all right. Uh, this is an amazing chapter. It's hard to do it justice. And, and I, I, I confess to you that it's, it's, it's not easy reading if you don't know the historical background. So I'm going to not read through the whole chapter today, but I'm going to try to focus in on some specifics just so you can get the detail because it's, it would take weeks and weeks to go over. I mean, this would be a history lesson. And, and that's pretty cool. I mean, whether you like history or not, you would have to say that's impressive <laughs> that, that he got all of this stuff in advance and he got it right. So um, 
Daniel chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, it says, And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Let's back up just a little bit. Verse 20 of chapter 10 says, Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? This is the angel speaking to Daniel. But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am uh, 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 going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Now he's speaking about spiritual warfare and speaking about these, these demonic strongholds, these angelic beings, and, and this war that's going on in the heavenlies. And so the angel says, I, 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 so I'm going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is, is about to come. And, and that's important because there's going to be some strong words here about what happens in Greece. Verse 21 says, however, I will tell you what is inscribed in the, writings, in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince and Michael, the, the angel. Okay, and, and so, and then from that point, right into verse 1, and in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia, then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong uh, the, uh, uh, through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of greece and so the angel is recalling a previous collaboration if you would that he's had with the archangel michael and he came to be an encouragement and to protect him he came alongside michael to to uh, to encourage him to protect him to to strengthen him and, and so here's one key point from from this morning is that angels work together to accomplish god's plan Angels work together to accomplish God's plan, all right? Now, they do that in a global sense. Uh, do you want to know how we should pray for our leaders? Uh, the Persian rulers had no idea that Satan was seeking to control them and to lead them into making decisions that would hurt the people of God. I mean, I mean if there's any arch enemy that satan has right now it's the church it is like if there's if there's any now he he hates anything of god and, and but but if but if he really would have a target and a bullseye uh, to to destroy anyone now he wants to destroy everything uh, he he wants at the the bride of christ because he cannot get at christ Jesus says, Satan has nothing in me. And, and he's been overcome, uh, Satan has. But, but if there's any target that he has, it's the church. It's the, it's the, the, the bride of Christ. Now, prior to that, uh, the, the church wasn't around. So, but it was the nation of Israel. And if there was any arch enemy in the old testament that he had it was the nation of israel because out of the nation of israel would come the messiah and if he can eliminate israel you know those chosen people by god then he will he can he can eliminate the messiah and so 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 these rulers have no idea what Satan's up to behind. We get a behind the scenes look, but he's leading them or trying to influence them into decisions that would affect the people of God. 
And so there's a decree that Cyrus makes to restore and uh, to rebuild and restore uh, Jerusalem that may have been won here in prayer. And so later on, the decree comes forth. But I believe that that decree was a part of this warning that took place and a part of Daniel's prayers even for this to take place. Ah, okay. So what might satanic forces be trying to influence our leaders into doing? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. But powers and principalities and rulers, we're not fighting against just worldviews or, 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 or secularism or, or, or humanism. We're, we're not, there's, there's something behind that that's much bigger than that that we're fighting against. And, and, so, and so what are, what are our leaders being influenced towards? That's why we need to be praying for our leaders. <laughs> and so globally, angels help to bring about the will of God on earth but also individually they do hebrews 1 14 says this are not the angels all ministering spirits or servants sent out in the service of god uh, for the assistance of those who are to inherit salvation oh so we have angels all about us guardian angels if you would the bible says that the the the, the children the, the, their angels never stop seeing the face of God. And I personally believe because that's because they always need instruction with our kids, right? Our children. Yeah. Uh, so, hey, you never know. And you know, the Bible even says sometimes we might even entertain angels and, and, and not know it. Just look at the person next to you. Just kind of look at them and go. There might be angels in our midst. If there are, man, put in a good word for old living grace, would you, when you get back up there? I'm serious. Isn't that, isn't that? I mean, you heard stories of people who have, who have survived miraculous circumstances and there was someone who showed up and then that person was gone and they go, where did they, and they don't see them any, oh, ooh, that's exciting possibilities. And so, globally and individually, the, um, Angels can uh, see to it that God's will is done. And so verse 2 says, And I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through the riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Four kings. Uh, Symbasis, Pseudo-Samaritus, Darius number, th the first, and Xerxes, a.k.a. Ahasuerus, if you've ever read the book of Esther. Okay? Uh, he ruled, uh, uh, Xerxes did, an empire that stretched from Ethiopia to India. Let's just call that most of the civilized world. Okay? And he tried to conquer Greece, as the scripture said, but he was defeated. And so on that defeat, he comes back uh, and has a pity party and decides to have a beauty contest. Which, of course, Esther wins. <laughs> and we know that whole story. And if not, you can read the book of Esther. That's how that happened, in particular, Esther chapter 1 and chapter 2. All right, verse 3 and 4, focusing on the nation of Greece. Okay, are you with me so far? Okay, verse 3 says, And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up 
and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he yielded for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given uh, to others besides him. Okay, that is the prophetic word for Alexander the Great, who was determined to punish the Persians for their invading and his exploits were all a part of God's mighty plan because Greek culture and Greek language was used by God to propagate the gospel throughout the entire earth. That was all a part. See, God's always thinking ahead. I mean, I mean, you, you really can't even say that about God because he's outside of time. He's always thinking that way in the past. He's certainly thinking in the future and he's always thinking ahead. Uh, 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 he has a plan in everything. Even though we don't always understand his plan, there's, there's, that's why things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose because he's in control and, and he sees the beginning from the end and he has an aerial view that we don't always have. And so all of that was a part, uh, a part of his plan is, as the, the gospel would spread uh, through the Greek language which the civilized world spoke uh, and it says that that he would rule with great authority and that he would do as he pleases, uh, that he would uh, uh, rise to power and then his kingdom would be taken. And, and right when Alexander the Great was at the height of his power at 32 years old, he dies. <laughs> yeah. And then it says uh, that uh, uh, none of his descendants... Uh, would rule after him. And it's amazing that this man had such an amazing um, uh, accomplishment, but he had no real legacy that he left behind. Isn't that interesting? And it's almost like he didn't pass it on. I mean, this, this man who could conquer nations couldn't even secure his own legacy. And, you know, you just think, how was that? Huh? All right, and so what happens is he has a half-brother named Philip, and he has Alexander II. So you're thinking, okay, this is cool. Alexander II was his legitimate son. Then he had an illegitimate son named Hercules. <laughs> and unfortunately, they were all murdered. And so his kingdom was divided. Just like Daniel said. And it was divided into four uh, kingdoms or four generals who took control of his kingdom, but none of them had the power that he had, just like it says. Okay? So that's pretty cool. All right. Verse 5 through 9. And he, this is, it gets real dicey. The whole chapter is dicey. But 5 through 9 is, is, is a part that we'll focus on. Because it's like, okay, what's going on? Verse 5. Then the king of the south... That's Ptolemy or Ptolemies will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him, him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. And after some years, they will form an alliance with the daughter of the king of the south. That's one of those four kings, four generals out of a peace agreement. 
Um, but she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. Now, this is specific detail. I mean, he's talking about exactly what's going to happen in the lives of these people, right? All right, verse 7. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place and he will come against their army and enter the fortresses of the king of the north and he will deal with them and display great strength. Verse 8. And also their gods uh, with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver, the gold, uh, will be taken into captivity to Egypt and on his part will remain from attacking the king of the north some years. Verse 9, after the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. Did you get that? Okay, you might want to read it again, but let me try to break it down to you. Okay, the kings of the north are the Seleucids. Okay, the kings of the south are the Ptolemies. Now, the rest of this prophecy uh, 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 deals with these two dynasties. Uh, that come after Alexander. And, and the reason they, that, that, that this prophecy deals with those two is because Israel is smack in the middle of the crosshairs of this feuding. And so, so there's, there's this battle going back and forth and Israel is like right in the middle. And so that's why this is included here. This, that's, why, that's why this is the focus. There's 130 years of fighting that's going on. And, and so Daniel is speaking about the nation of Israel. Verse 5 says, the king of the south will grow strong, that's Ptolemy's, with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion. Okay, so Ptolemy had a prince named Seleucius. And Seleucius took over the region of Syria. And he became stronger then Ptolemy was. Verse 6 says that they would join forces. forces. And after some years, they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful agreement, which was a customary thing. If you wanted to have a peace agreement with another nation, well, you give up one of your daughters. And then therefore, no, you know, you're not going to attack them. They're not going to attack you because you're kind of related now. So, so that was a, a, a common thing. Well, what happened? There was a marriage between Antiochus II from the north with Bernice from the south, the daughter of Ptolemy II. And so just like he said, the marriage happened. Okay? And so they, they joined forces. Now, there was peace between them until Ptolemy II died. And it says that she will not retain her position. And she didn't because Antiochus II divorced her and took back his former wife. Are you with me? <laughs> because it turns out that the king would not allow him to marry Bernice's daughter unless he divorced his wife. These are not people who follow God's word by any stretch. So he divorces his wife and he marries Bernice. Ptolemy II dies and he divorces her and remarries his former wife, Laodice. Does this sound like a movie script? <laughs> Did I mention to you that Daniel wrote this before any of it happened? Crazy. Okay. And it says, nor will he remain with his power. Laodice did not trust Antiochus II. 
Why would you? He already divorced you to marry someone else and then divorced her to remarry you again. She didn't trust him, so she had him poisoned. It says he will not remain with his power, and he didn't. <laughs> then it says she will be given up along with those who brought her. So after the murder of Antiochus II, Laodice had Bernice, her attendants, and her son killed. So she was given up. Then she set, Laodice did, set her son, Seleucius II, on the throne. Okay? Verse 7. <laughs> it says, But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortresses of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Great strength. One of the descendants of her line will arise in his place. Turns out Ptolemy Third, Bernice's brother, avenges her death by attacking Seleucius II, the king of the north. And he kills her. Just like Daniel said. Verse 8. And also their gods with their metal images, their precious metals of silver or gold, will be taken into captivity to Egypt. And he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. And so what did he do? Ptolemy Third, Bernice's brother, took back to Egypt the gold, the gods, the metal images, the vessels of silver and gold. Just like Daniel said. That's the reoccurring theme here. Just like Daniel said, because that's what the angel told him. Which that's what God told the angel. Okay. Verse 9. Later, he tried to retaliate, but failed. Verse 10 through 19. Okay. The focus is on one of Seleucius II's son. Antiochus III, also Antiochus the Great. Verse 10 through 13 says that he drove, out, he drove out the Ptolemies out of Palestine. He was viewed as a champion of the people, but he wasn't. Verse 16 says this. It says, but he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stray, uh, stay for a time in the beautiful land Israel with destruction in his hand. Verse 19 says, so he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. That's what happened. And so he has a son, Antiochus III does, and his son's name is Seleucius IV. That son was murdered. His brother... Antiochus IV usurps the throne. And you've heard this name before if you've been with us through our study in Daniel. That is Antiochus Epiphanes. That is the little horn that is a prototype of the Antichrist that we read about in Daniel chapter 8, verse 9 through 13. And you can reference that. Daniel chapter 8, verse 9 through 13. Verse 25 says... And he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an entire large army and mighty army for war, but he will not stand for schemes will be devised against him. Well, he defeats Ptolemy the fourth. Now, 
in 168 B.C., he tries to conquer Egypt for the second time. Verse 30 says this. For ships of Kittim will come against him. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who, forsa who forsake the Holy Covenant. In other words, those who turn against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he will show regard for them. Uh, but others, not so much. He tries to conquer Egypt for a second time. He fails. He has met there by the Romans, and he's warned to leave or else. And the Roman navy defeated the navy of Antiochus Epiphanes, and after the battle, now imagine this, a Roman general drew a circle around Antiochus in the dirt and demanded to know if he would surrender and pay tribute to Rome and demanded to know that before he stepped out of the circle. Could you imagine? I mean, he thinks he's all that. He gets defeated and they draw a circle around him and they say, before you leave that circle, you need to let us know. From that point on, Atticus Epiphanes took his orders from the Romans and was under Roman dominion. Now, why is that important? He's humiliated. And he turns to Israel and he vents his anger against them. Verse 31 says this. It says, and forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Okay. He, in an attack on Israel, because of his anger, kills thousands. He is said to have killed 80,000 Jews, taken 40,000 prisoners, and sold another 40,000 as slaves. He plunders the temple and ransacks it and robs it of an amount estimated to be a billion dollars. He outlaws Judaism. <clears throat> he takes over worship in the temple, sets up an altar to Zeus, and sacrifices a pig on the altar. You remember this if you're with us? Okay. He is a type of the Antichrist. Um... And he's willing to embrace those who will turn away from true faith. Um, this is written in advance. And this is a dark, dark day in Israel. It's a dark time. But you know what? Light shines in the darkness, doesn't it? And in the darkness, the ray of hope shines its brightest look at verse 32 it says this it says and by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant but the people who know their god will display strength and take action i love that it's a dark time but the people who know their god will uh display strength and take action. And so 
The Maccabean family revolts against Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. And in 165 BC, after three years of guerrilla warfare, Judas Maccabeus cleanses the temple and restores true worship once again. Jewish people celebrate this year, this, this uh, celebration every year. It's called the Feast of Lights, or you might know this term, Hanukkah. The tradition says that when the Maccabees sought to cleanse the temple, they discovered that there was only enough consecrated oil to sustain the eternal light in the temple for one day. And so it would take at least eight days to crush more olives and to cure that olive oil into the kind of purity that it needed to be cured to that it might be able to burn in the lamp. And so according to the tradition, the oil that should have lasted only one night kept burning for eight nights. And so today, Jewish people light the Hanukkah or the Hanukkah menorah every night of the eight-day holiday celebration and give gifts uh, to their children. Uh, they also eat foods fried in oil, such as potato cakes, jelly donuts, and commemorate how God preserved the Jewish people, uh, conquered their enemies, and allowed them to have a new season of life. That's kind of cool. Now it says, those who know their God will display strength and take great action. Knowing God, what does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, wouldn't you agree there's a difference between knowing of God and knowing God? See, I grew up knowing God. Oh, let me change that. Knowing of God. I, I believe there was a God in heaven. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. But it, I didn't know the fullness of it. I didn't know how it applied to me. I had gone to church, you know, you know, kind of grew up Catholic like most of us did, you know, and a little bit of Baptist church on weekends when we were at my grandmother's house, you know. Uh, yeah, everybody went to church. But I didn't, I didn't, it, didn't it, it had no impact in my life. See, see, if you know of God, but you don't know him, then it won't change your life at all. And there are multitudes of people that think that because they know uh, uh, of God that that's all they need and that's not that's not the highest knowledge that a human can attain is personal knowledge of God Jeremiah 9.24 says this but let him who glories glory in this that he understands and knows me God says personally and practically directing discerning and recognizing my character that I am the Lord who practices loving kindness judgment and righteousness in the earth and uh, for in these things I delight says the Lord see because we are sinners we can't naturally know God and we might naturally know of God but we can't naturally know him because we're sinners and our conscience is all messed up and we don't know his word we don't know his laws and so John 17, 3 says this, and this is eternal life. It, it means to know, to perceive, recognize, become acquainted with, and to understand. Let me read it again. This is eternal life. And here's what that means. Uh, to know, to perceive, to recognize, to become acquainted with, and to understand. What good is having a relationship with God if you can't understand God? Now, we can't understand all of God, but we can trust that God will allow us to understand what we might need to know at the moment. I mean, and so it's understanding Him. Uh, it means 
uh, this is the eternal life. You, the uh, understanding, knowing, recognizing you, the only true and real God, and likewise to know him, Jesus, as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Knowing God and knowing Jesus. That's eternal life, knowing him. But what does it mean to know him? To perceive him, to recognize him, to become acquainted with him, to understand him. And he says that those who know their God will display strength and, and, and take action or do great exploits. Daniel knew that his people would suffer uh, great difficulties and that some would join the enemies and that others would trust in the Lord and do great exploits. Hey, listen, God always has a remnant that will keep his covenant with his people until the very end. Do you know God or do you know of God? There's a difference. There's a difference. Daniel says those who know him will display strength and take great action. Chapter 11 goes on and it talks a lot about the Antichrist. We'll pick that up next week and, and continue in that. But I wanted you, I, I wanted you to get, I, I wanted to focus on just one part of this amazing detail. I mean, he's literally speaking about people, their comings, their goings, kingdoms rising and falling, and this war that's going on between the north and the south with Israel right in the middle. And he's going to shift gears from Antiochus Epiphanes and go right to the Antichrist. We'll learn a little bit more about the Antichrist and then we'll cruise in, into chapter 12. With that, today we're going to celebrate communion. And um, this is our covenant meal. If you know God, then you know about communion because you've, invited, you've been invited to his banqueting table. Uh, you understand that this is our covenant meal. And um, before we take communion, if I, uh, Jared, come on up, brother. And I, just, uh, I just want to, to pray with you that you might uh, take this opportunity to, to know God to receive him, to acknowledge him, uh, to, to perceive him and to ask him into your life. Um, there's a transition that happens from, from just knowing, knowing of God and knowing him. And, and that has to do when, when, uh, when God just takes the scales off your eyes. I, 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 man, I, that's the best definition I could give you what happened to me. I knew, a, I knew about God and I, you know, you know, every once in a while I throw God some props. Every once in a while. But I didn't know him. I didn't know him. And, and, and as I started coming to church, I started hearing the word of God. And that's how if people say, well, I'm not sure what God wants me to do. Read his word. Well, how do I get to know God? Read the Bible. <laughs> Discern it. Understand it. Dig into it. Don't just listen to what someone else has to say about the Bible. Get into this book yourself. Uh, 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 let this be your food, your bread. It, it, it absorb it. Well, I, how do I, how do I, well, what, yeah, no, read the book. 